Good afternoon, I'm George Jones. Here we have our panel. We've been reflecting on what it is we're talking about. Um, I think it's about Ian's book, and particularly about Hackney, where it's set. Now, I don't live in Hackney. I live in Islington. Um, to me, Ian... Hackney's East Islington. To me, Ian captures my attitude to Hackney. Hackney, after all, is one of London's twilight zones, neither fish nor fowl. It's not North London, neither is it the East. It's by no means easy to get to, it has no tube, it's poorly served by buses, and its railway stations are on lines that link only to the hubs of other twilight zones. <laughs> Indeed, when you think of, well, when I think of Hackney, uh, Hackney I have no sense of there being a there, there. It's a place without a there. Uh, and I wonder if there is anything now in Hackney. Why would anyone ever want to go to Hackney? What do we think of Hackney? The marshes? The Hackney carriages? The Hackney empire? I live in North Islington and walked down, I came here today, I'm sure following the track of the mysterious lost Hackney Brook which runs from what's called South Highgate, Archway, Upper Holloway to anybody else, to Hackney. So I feel that I'm in contact with those underground forces that uh, are so much a part of Ian's book. Ian lived in Hackney, as I understand it, for 40 years, and it's about 40 years that this book covers. Now, there is a history to Hackney before Ian went there. <laughs> and that, I hope, is where Jerry comes in, because Jerry White, <coughs> very distinguished historian, has written uh, two books ab uh, about the history of London in the 20th century and in the 19th century. And Hackney appears in there. And also Jerry was a local government officer. In fact, he was the chief executive for some time of Hackney. And that was the capacity in which I first met Jerry when he was chief executive and I went to see him, talk to him about governing Hackney, which always seemed an impossible task. I think it may have defeated Jerry, as it has defeated so many others. And uh, on my visit, I paid a, tour, a, a, a visit at the back of the town hall to the array of previous dignitaries, including my great hero, Herbert Morrison, because that was the cause of my very first visit to Hackney in the 1960s when I was writing a biography of Herbert Morrison. And Herbert Morrison learned his trade as a politician in Hackney in the town hall. 
He was a Labour mayor of Hackney in the 1920s and that's where he learned how to be a skilled politician and above all how to handle officers and from the perspective of officers, civil servants afterwards, Morrison was always regarded as a model professional politician so Morrison learned something important from Hackney but I do fear that the image I have of Hackney politics and it comes out very well in Ian's books is that it's a place of warring sex, loony lefties uh, always rowing with each other a sort of place of, of a perpetual undergraduate evening in um, well that's my picture of Hackney it, the also my final image to get over to you as I see it of Hackney which I think is in tune with some of the themes of Ian's book is that the past is always there under the surface if you go there and look at the now I don't think frankly there's much to see or do, would you go to Hackney uh, unless you had to <laughs> this old park now I recommend that if you've got children that was always a super park with animals with a marvellous uh, set of play equipment I can see the sense of going to look at Clissol Park Victoria Park that was something different that was forbidding I got the impression they didn't really welcome people to it <laughs> now the, Patrick our other speaker has also written of parts of Hackney and I think I get from both of them that this is a rather formless place kaleidoscopic reality that's a, a picture I have I think it's a place you only go to because it was once important there are parts of Hackney that were locations for important events or important buildings and that's why anybody would want to go to Hackney well I think I've said enough I'm now going to I could talk of course about civic no, don't, don't. corruption <laughs> and civic neglect uh, but um, I think we'll turn to Ian and Ian let okay. it go right can I, can I... I don't know if this is active, no, it probably isn't, but I just like the thing of preaching when you've got a captive audience. Uh, nice that you mentioned Clissold Park and with such great affection. Uh, it was a very popular place too for someone called Astrid Prohl, who was one of the Bader Meinhof group, who Hackney decided to sponsor when she was on the run by giving her a job as a garden. So she was in Clissold Park. This was before she was trained as a motor mechanic and given the job of uh, teaching young black offenders how to strip down motor cars, which is where she made her fatal mistake of uh, storming into the local police station to complain about the way they were treating these young black offenders and getting herself arrested because they were bright enough to notice her from a wanted poster. <laughs> That's very much the nature of Hackney, but since, since, 
Since we're here, this is, I believe this is the London School of Economics, I think we should think about economics too and come in from that side. It's not something I know anything about, but the whole idea of the kind of money metaphor as a description of the world has completely disappeared and gone. We're in another ball game altogether. The fact that actually we're not being paid to be here today, this is a, makes it very strange. Why on earth would someone get up who isn't being paid? Either it's an excess of vanity or promotion or else uh, it's much closer related to people who get up at Hyde Park. They, they're going to bark at you, say strange things, and there is some compulsion to speak in tongues. <laughs> a week ago today, I was on a very, very strange excursion, which is very true to contemporary happening. It's a bit like Tom Wolfe's Bonfire of the Vanities. What was happening was a route master bus, about which everybody feels very affectionate, was chartered to run from the north of the borough, Finsbury Park, which is the boundary, across to London Fields, where there's an artist studio, and finally out to Hackney Wick. This is a trajectory right across the whole boundary of the place. And movement is part of what Hackney is about, the strange conjunctions. It's an enormous borough, it's kind of elastic wasting that takes in parts of the wealth of the city and areas of enormous poverty and deprivation and wildernesses up the edge on the uh, River Lee side, apparently. Well, we get on this bus, and of course, uh, drinks are provided on the bus, and the whole sense is of this slightly insane journey where Hackney becomes an artwork, which is always one way of looking at it. And uh, the people on the bus don't know where they are. As George said, there is no there for them to see. Uh, they stop at the first studio in London Fields, and of course there's blue and white police tape up, because there are police cars, there's a guy lying the road, there's a classic Hackney incident, but they're kind of not sure if this is an artwork I've arranged or not. <laughs> they pass through their various savage dogs, but some of them are represented in the paintings of Jock McFadden, and they kind of relax because it's a studio and it all picks up. But as this Routemaster bus moves down through Hackney, at the back of Ridley Road and so on, the natives who don't understand this concept that this is all ironic and inverted commas actually try to get on the bus <laughs> because they're really affectionate about Routemaster buses which are no longer there. They don't like the kind of bendy buses and all that. So they're trying to get on this bus and the woman standing there is trying to explain this is not a real bus. Because it looks like a real bus. You know, these, these are the kind of buses that we absolutely love. And finally, as, as night is beginning to settle in, they're, they're getting a bit nervous. I actually get them to the blue fence, the borderline. This is where the city really divides into two different things. And you've got this series of warehouses that look over an absolute sea of mud like an invaded city where the lorries are rolling day and night into this space. The grinding machinery is there and the thereness has been sucked out of this landscape around Stratford where I once in fact worked in a container loading yard, but that's another story. Anyway, we go into this yard and it's the perfect landscape because at the back is a wilderness island on the edge of the development zone, which has no longer got any function to be developed. And uh, one of those, rather like this, kind of this wooden cladding is very, very key on the new buildings that have gone up. Uh, overnight has appeared this building like a ghost ship, clad in bits of teak, unoccupied. And in front of it, the walls are absolutely covered with incredible graffiti, like Mexico City, like wonderful crocodiles and skulls exploding and all the rest of it and uh, an enormous skip and everybody of course has their digital cameras flashing away and out of the skip crawls a figure he's actually been sleeping in there he's 
Another one has been collecting odd shoes to make another artwork. And we go up, and they, they, they're very nervous about having these people in there because somebody's overdosed and there's, the sirens are going. So the kind of reality, the fiction, and the, the thing that's trying to be presented creates an extraordinary universe that people haven't really appreciated. The thing that's not seen. They don't know what's happening because the, the, the second life, the kind of notion of the computer-generated reality is overwhelming. The real battle that goes on out there is as these fences, these enclosures that happen, occur, what happens is the, the fences themselves are covered like a blue screen in television with a sort of form of imagery which has no relation to any kind of life. There are like Scientologists or Mormons with grinning faces in front of gleaming immaculate stadia which will actually never be built in some cases. An enormous parkland is created in virtual imagery and that's pumped out all the time so that actually people believe this is the truth. You say, do you know what actually happened here? No, they don't. They've no notion of the backstory. So this has really put some pressure on the people who live there in a kind of permitted wilderness, a zone between zones. They have to come up with some alternative version of this, which has sent them back to doing incredible things on walls, to making artworks in the kind of the spirit of the last days, knowing that if they look out of their window, everything is vanishing. One of the most remarkable spaces in the whole thing was a series of allotments given a hundred years ago on land that was part of the Hackney Marshes in perpetuity. Uh, and a, a, a community developed there, initially very energized by the, those who'd survived the Second War, particularly a group of old submariners, started to build these huts out of the rubbish they scavenged out of this landscape. Um, and more recent times, Kurdish mountain people were living there next to quite fancy restaurateurs from Islington. All of them, this whole community, which ticked every box of what the Olympics were supposedly about. They were recovering the soil, they were growing, and they created a series of individual communities. And there's a filmmaker called Emily Richardson who did live in Hackney and who's made a wonderful record of these particular buildings, which she's showing at the moment in a gallery called the Daniel Arnaud Gallery in Kennington Road, 123 Kennington Road, worth checking out, because it's kind of heartbreaking to see this, because what happened was it unfortunately it sat on what would become the perimeter fence of the Olympics, so it had to go and it's been, um, the people there were removed and all of that's obliterated and they were put onto another site which is the bleakest thing I've ever seen on a corner of Hackney Marshes next to a motorway. Uh, the ground is flooded, it's going to cost half a million quid to rescue it. Um, and the, the huts built for them are like a series of chicken coops. And most of them gave up, some of them have carried on and they haven't grown a single thing in the period that they've been expelled. This is a kind of classic, we can quantify what's lost we can't describe what's still there. Hackney itself, the journey, is of increasing difficulty because the nature of it is, is to impose not only this virtual reality, but a kind of savage form of geometry. They love the idea of squares. Everything has to be Gillette square, or um, a quarter. Patrick and I, in earlier life, visited somewhere called the Bow Quarter which actually was the old match factory where the match girl strike took place and was reinvented <coughs> in that kind of Thatcherite boom. It is something that was called a quarter. As long as you can get the fraction into it, it's okay. Or else you call yourself a village. If you, once, once you want to detach yourself from Hackney, but you're in Hackney, 
you would call yourself Mapledean Village, which is where the Blairs conveniently located to for the early Thatcher years before moving on, like our chairman, to Islington, better climbs. They, they didn't really realise what the story was in Hackney. The way to negotiate the streets becomes more and more difficult because you're importing a kind of suburbia you, you, where the Holly Street estate, this, this wonderful zone of tower blocks that went up when I moved there in 1969, the, the terrace where I lived was condemned. It was being pulled down to put up the, the, the tower blocks, which are part of this sort of Corbusier experiment, which then ran out of puff at that point. And when those came down, estate after estate after estate went into Holly Street. But they were sort of disasters in lots of different ways. The main thing about the original estate was that uh, it was a perfect environment for cockroaches. They had an expert down from Cambridge. There's nowhere better in the whole world for breeding cockroaches. <laughs> you've got an enormous uh, generating of heat. You've got um, the enormous gaps between the stone and the, the, the floorboards. And you've got hollow doors. And they just, cockroaches love it. And they got, they, one woman cooked a chicken in a microwave and banged it down on a table with a film crew. And the, the chicken exploded and just a million cockroaches rushed out. So in that sense, all of this area is very peculiar. And now, the, the take on it is, is that it, it's okay because we're going to cover it with CCTV. And a young researcher uh, from Cambridge who was doing a project on actually how valuable is CCTV came, came to see me and discovered that Hackney Council have this enormous bunker in Stoke Newington with 60 or more and growing all the time surveillance screens whereby the whole of the the area turns into a kind of movie. It's the same philosophy I was talking about before. And you, what you do is you watch it, but you don't intervene. So that everything is logged, but nothing is actually done. Um, and this guy, I interviewed him, because one of the methods I use in this book is just to let people tell long monologues of what they discovered. He said, in the Stoke Newington surveillance room, they were saying, we'll have a camera on every street corner in Hackney. Their view is, if it can be proved that this technology displaces crime, we must put cameras everywhere. So there are no dark places in the city, and then the problem is solved. It goes back to what my guide was saying about CCTV cutting into the budget of the library services. None of the money for this operation comes from central government. It all comes from Hackney Council tax. The Home Office in the 1990s put up a lot of money for council CCTV schemes. 78% of the crime prevention budget goes on CCTV. They then commission a report. At the end of the 1990s, they concluded CCTV actually does very little to reduce overall crime statistics. If you put CCTV on Holly Street, it will reduce crime, but in national terms, it doesn't have any effect. They said, our money has been completely wasted. Government is now encouraging other people to initiate CCTV schemes, but they're not offering financial support. I asked the Hackney CCTV watchers how they stop criminal behaviour. All the entire operation amounts to, I discovered, is just to collect evidence for various Met operations going on at the time. The Met officers are constantly swanning in and out of the Hackney Control Centre. They say, can we get video footage of such and such a location? Hackney Council taxpayers are essentially writing a blank cheque to provide resources for the Metropolitan Police. The other major activity in the Stoke Newington CCTV room is the storage of automatic number plate recognition software. The boundary of Hackney is policed by a surveillance ring fence. 
It's one of the only boroughs that has this automatic recognition facility. They bought it from Northern Ireland, from Special Branch. Every car that enters Hackney has its number plate scanned. And what this has achieved, the operatives told me, is to cause drug dealers and others with stolen vehicles to stay within the borough. It's a self-imposed <laughs> self tagging scheme. <laughs> as soon as a car crosses into Islington, it goes off screen. So you're okay with this one. Okay. <laughs> the tragedy of this, of course, was that the CCTV came in to cover the whole of the Holly Street estate, and there was another of these squares called Evergreen Square. My God. Um, bristling with cameras, and so the local characters who used to hang out on the square um, doing whatever they did found that they, they, they couldn't be there any longer because they were being registered so they actually started to break into the buildings into the stairwells where there were no cameras and a guy who was studying working, who'd actually got a place in Cambridge as a mathematician who'd come to England as a refugee came down the stairs to complain about the stuff that was going on and was stabbed and killed so that in that case that the fact that the watching was going on actually led to his death. And there is this Orwellian sense that the watching continues in that now <coughs> uh, council groups have been provided with cameras to follow people around places like London Fields and catch them dropping litter. So if you drop litter, you can be filmed and fined. But once you get it into your head that the notion is to film and watch, you, it's hard to define when someone's dropping litter or just having a conversation or whatever it is. The whole way of thinking is extremely strange and bizarre. If you managed to negotiate this set of places, you would land on Dorston Lane, which is the, the territory that Patrick famously wrote about in Journey Through Ruins. This is, this is a, it wasn't that long ago, but it seems like a totally different era. Because Dorston Lane, I was talking to Jerry about this, has vanished. I met Jerry, uh, <coughs> and originally I didn't realize he had this elevated position at Hackney Council because he was a customer of my bookstore, I had a second-hand bookstore in Islington, and uh, Jerry used to come and buy the, the sort of lost books of London history, fiction or non-fiction, and, and build up a very interesting bibliography. Um, and Patrick I met because he, he was um, writing a piece about my first book, and he'd, he'd moved into the area where I was living, and we discovered this kind of a shared passion for wandering the city, um, doing that kind of strange picking up with trifles research, finding odd little stories. And Patrick discovered that actually you could, you could tease a whole book out of one, one small street that stood there with a mixture of Georgian terraces, a strange club, a black club, as it was then, called the Four Aces, which had once upon a time been a Victorian circus, which then became a state-of-the-art electric cinema in the 1920s, black club to uh, finally a labyrinth, which was a, a club of the rave era, the ecstasy era, and then squatted and then disappeared from the map. It was obliterated as part of a, a massive development to put in a railway. The strange thing was, when I moved in 1969, there was a railway. It ran from this very spot down to the city to Broadgate, and you could travel into the city. It was part of that pattern of Hackney belonging to the Victorian clerks. Clerks of the city had their houses in Hackney. They could very easily move on a train up to here. That train service was still in place. It was very popular. It was taken out because apparently it wasn't popular. The real reason it was taken out was because of the Broadgate development to create this kind of fake New York, airsats New York with, with um, skating rinks and all the rest that is now the city. But of course, 
because of the Olympic development, we need this transport hub to get people to the sports day for a fortnight. So it's an, an, it becomes inevitable that you have to put the railway back in. So having gone, it's now re restored. It's not going to go down to the same place anymore. And to pay for it, you've got to put up a huge, monolithic, 20-story development by Barrett's who have unfortunately just declared a loss of 250 million pounds and won't be able to complete on this. So you've got this monstrous thing, which also re rewrites the geometry of the city, which is what I was talking about, because pavements disappear, you can't move, those kind of liberties are gone. The Ridley Road market, which was the centre of anarchy and spirit and community, has to be cleared away by bureaucratic pestilence from above to create a huge shopping mall to develop a thing they call pedestrian permeability, which is that you come out of the station and you walk through a particular tunnel that only gives you access to the shopping mall. And to do that, you've got to blast a tunnel through the middle of a wonderful Art Deco building that's sitting there in a cafe. So these strange senses of geometry are there. It's slightly oppressive. And I'll just finish by a brief extract from an interview with a guy called Bill Perry Davis, who's a solicitor on Dalston Lane, who's watched this development. This, this area of Patrick's very closely. They want a new big bus station on the theatre side on a huge concrete slab over the railway cutting. The slab costs 39 million pounds. How is that slab going to be paid for? We'll get planning permission to build a 20-storey tower block right here. We'll get Hackney to give us half the value of the site along with planning permission. And all this activity, all this destruction is to pay for a naked slab so the TfL can pass their buses and have a transport interchange. You have to build higher to achieve a small footprint. They say the bus station is a strategic requirement for the Olympics. Nothing must stand in its way. So you have to invent a method for getting clients from this new station to Dalston Kingsland further up the road. You try walking there now. You can't move. You can't breathe in the crush. What is inevitable is more demolition. The Crown and Castle pub on the corner, they're knocking it down. The finest building in the junction. The forces are huge. This is a multi-million pound development, a 200 million pound development. The Olympics have made everything much worse. Now all the forces of government are working towards the one strategic objective. They have immense powers, the GLA, the TfL, the Hackney Council. They offer up a gesture of public cons consultation, but the consultations are sham, it's a waste of time. A lot of the work goes into opposing their proposals. It was a done deal, a hard lesson to learn. Look outside, the site is flat, it's rubble, it's like a return to the first age of the railways. It's the total destruction that follows any major change in the transport infrastructure. The council architect said, we're reinstating the historic urban grid. This used to be a line of houses down Rosebury Place, and so there were. They were two-story houses with front and back gardens. Now there will be a 20-story block with no gardens. That's what you mean, reinstating the grid. That's just bullshit. That's architectural bullshit. Thank you, Ian. We now have Patrick Wright, who's also, as we hear, a resident of Hackney, written about Hackney, and my notes tell me he has written a number of highly acclaimed and sometimes also reviled books, including The Village That Died for England, Tank, The Progress of a Monstrous War Machine, 
uh, a journey through ruins. And he's an extensive broadcaster, filmmaker, and we're going to have some uh, visual aids. Patrick Rubin. But we're going to start off in East Berlin, because we're talking about Hackney. Um, I was thinking about, I had a conversation yesterday about this text. One of my, I think one of the most interesting political writers of the late 20th century, or maybe the mid-20th century, is a German called Uwe Jonsson, who was known as the novelist of the divided Germany, who did us all the great favor in a sense, and uh, you know, we, we didn't know this at the time, but he moved to Sheerness and drank himself to death in the early 80s, and he just gave up on German politics. But in the late 50s, he was living in Berlin. The city was divided, um, and the wall hadn't been built. And he was writing a novel, and he had a problem, which I think I can relate to Hackney in a rather oblique way. He opens this rather wonderful essay, which was published in the Evergreen Review in 1961, by saying, I would like to discuss some of the difficulties I encountered in describing a Berlin interurban station. At this time, the subway systems, the trams were connected. You could still travel from eastern to western Berlin. A man, one among many, steps out of a train that has just pulled in, crosses the platform, heads towards the street exit. An everyday occurrence with slight variations I saw, or rather I watched this endlessly, so I thought I might write about it. The novel I was working on needed something to interrupt its flow. I wanted four connected sentences as a kind of bulk to stand out from the rest to suggest a pause. A man getting off a train seemed to serve this purpose, but it didn't fit into either one long or four short sentences, so I substituted another incident that produced the same effect. After a while, it annoyed me that this simple scene in the station refused to symbolize Berlin, and I tried to make a whole story of it to describe just that problem. That's when I ran into difficulties. Now, what Johnson is saying there is that in a divided city, there is no single reality, um, and therefore there are slants. There are these very divided ideological takes on the world, constantly opposed, constantly policing everything. Depending upon where you are or how you stand in relation to this division, even the simplest fact looks different. You know, so a man walking out of a railway station can't be used except in a cod please the public novel as a sort of romance. You can't use it in a novel in a way that assumes it has a grounded reality. And I think, as we think about what sort of writing can come out of a place like East London in our time, that's a very good example to remember, that problem, that fundamental problem of how we deal with the idea of the real in a place that constantly runs off with any nail anybody tries to hammer it down with. And I'm just going to make a few points about that. First off, it seems to me that East London and Hackney, but all of East London, consists in a way of a modest, hard-pressed reality that is endlessly engulfed by a storm of received or imported symbolism. And that play between the modesty of what is actually happening on the ground and the florid nature of the interpretations people oppose, impose on it is a really important issue for anybody trying to get to a grip on this place. You can start with the Victorian imagery of the abyss, Jack the Ripper, the Elephant Man. You can move straight in, as I did when I was writing Journey Through Ruins into the 80s, with this welfare of the, uh, this image of the imagery of the welfare state as a monstrous thing. You know, the, 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 the council estate, the high-rise tower block being used as an emblem of what the geographer Ruth Glass once called, <coughs> she invented the word gentrification in the 60s. She once talked about the image, the image of the high-rise being used to, um, to sort of symbolize what she called the zombies of the welfare state. 
Otherwise, people in Lithuania were zombified by this symbol that was attached to them. You can take this on in lots of different ways. You can, in, when I was in Hackney, I don't live there anymore, but when I did live there, there was this wonderful contrary rhetoric as well that was equally extravagant in its use of, of language against place. The, the council couldn't run anything, but it was putting up nuclear-free zone signs. The libraries were, were, were the windows were ablaze with, with posters promising revolution in three corners of the world, four corners of the world, and there was a notice on the door saying closed due to shortage of staff. You know, so, so that sense of rhetoric was not only a kind of traditional sort of monstrous making imagery, it was, it was also these political contrary claims. Second point, which is absolutely crucial, which is perhaps shared with Berlin, although very differently, is that there is no uniformity of view that is possible in a decent city in the 20th century. Um, there may be no there in Hackney, but there sure are a lot of here's. There are people there from all over the world. There are perspectives that are completely mixed, completely rich, completely confused in their, um, their, their, their sort of prolixity. Um, so a city is not the city, you know, the city is not a place of single views. Um, instead, we're dealing with radically different views, often opposed views, cultures, and prospects. And I believe the, the big challenge of the city for the writer is the same in this respect as it is for the administrator or the the, the civil servant or whoever, is how do you express the collectivity of this place? My own view is that the old collectivist ideas are not adequate. We've seen the problems with them. The managerialist ideas that are being used now to re-rip the place are equally neglectful of the attempt of tending to the people. And I think the best model that history provides is the model of the common. I know we're talking about a city, and commons are normally thought about as rural places. But the great thing about a common is rights of common is traditionally they allow for different people to make use of a public domain or even a semi-public domain from very different points of view. So you know as you use it that other people use it differently. In other words, you have rights to put animals there, somebody else has rights to pick up kindling or whatever it is. So the rights of common are about a form of mutual use of a public domain which doesn't insist on melting everybody down into some crapulous idea of what their identity or their interest is. The third general point that a writer dealing with East London has to face is the dereliction of politics, both national and local. Hackney has spent many parts of the post-war period, I don't know what Morrison was like, but for many years, and when I was there certainly in the 70s and 80s and 90s, it was effectively a failed state. And that is the only, let's be honest about this. And what we've had is, I mean, when I lived there, every dust cart was a pirate ship. You know, these guys, I mean, good luck to them. They privatized them before Thatcher came up with privatization. They were driving around. You had to pay them off to get them to pick everything up. You know, there are all sorts of ridiculous deals like this. We've known the, the housing estates were cockroach-breeding farms. I mean, you know, there are endless examples of this. The housing department, I remember visiting it, it was like going to a crack house in the Bronx. It was, it was armored. You couldn't get in. You know, I mean, there, there were these poor officials hiding from the enraged populace. The, the council chamber was quite often like that as well. So this is the first point. Now, I'm not making two cheap points about the council, although I think they deserve it. Um, but I do think that, um, you know, basically we have a major problem about how we politically articulate these parts of the city. And it seems to me that this story that Ian told us about surveillance is completely part of this. What we now have is a situation where all politics has gone derelict and we have managerialism in its place. 
And managerialism is, is, is really an issue. And it's, it's expressed in this introduction, introduction of surveillance. It's expressed in uh, the way planning, planning is operating in relationship to places of complexity. It's expressed, I think, particularly in the way a kind of green vocabulary is being used with an absolute lack of democratic attachment. As long as you've got bloody <coughs> nesting room for night jars on that new building in Dorston Lane, you can get away with wrecking the place. Yeah? I mean, I'm serious. There's a real problem about the way green rhetoric has been used to just sort of replace democratic politics. Um, now then, what kind of writing? Uh, just a few points here. First of all, I don't think you can write in a way that is single-voiced. Um, or even simply descriptive within a place as complex as the city. I think Hackney is a wonderful place to write about for, the re for these very reasons, because it's, it's challenging, it's difficult. You can't run a simple description over it. Um, so I also believe that you can't operate as the kind of chief executive of your own perceptions. Um, you can't... Uh, you, I mean, the, you, you, there is, you, you can't sort of operate... On, I mean, I think the idea of a survey is problematic. The idea of the kind of survey that the London School of Economics is associated where you go into these places and you sort of map the sociology and come up with general conclusions. The truth of the matter is that people live in very different worlds, and one has to find a way of engaging that if you're writing about a place of the sort of happens. You've got to be very careful also not to use the imagery of the abyss in a way that simply reaffirms it. You know, I mean, there was a wonderful, interesting book in the early 80s called Inside the Inner City by Paul Harrison, a man I deeply respect. Um, who went to Hackney and produced a book that revealed it to be the worst place in the world. And he was playing on the imagery of the abyss, supposedly in order to embarrass Margaret Thatcher and her government into changing their politics. But my suspicion is that it, it only succeeded in playing on the imagery of the abyss, to be honest. Um, second, so thriving on chaos is a temptation that should be avoided. Thriving on chaos is a phrase from a management bullshit, it's what Ian describes, but it is, in a sense, part of what psychogeography has become, this sense of so a lot of the art of the East End is to do with celebrating disruption and chaos and dirt and filth and, you know, I mean, I think we have to be careful about that, although I'm not suggesting we deny the condition. Um, you know, a writer doesn't only have to rival the, the Hackney Gazette on its bad days, in other words. And I also think one needs to use exploration, one needs to use analysis, one needs to, um, you know, you can't, I think, write about Hackney without digging into the background. Um, so for me, this street, I'm going I'm to end very quickly. I'll just show you these pictures because this is the piece of Dalston Lane. My experience when I was doing Journeys Through Ruins was I didn't know how to unify this book and all these investigations I'd made into various aspects of post-war culture and how you know, the, the, sort of the, 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 the history of the welfare state was expressed in Hackney's pleasures and agonies. So I just found this bit of street, which is Dalston Lane. All it was was a piece of the I walked up over there and the bus, and it's a 300, 400-yard stretch. And it's, of course, a place that looks absolutely crap. I mean, from the standing aesthetic point of view, you know, I remember Peter Bosman, who was one of the many government ministers who was responsible for improving the area, so called, said, I don't know why he became about that kind of demolished and all the general road. After all, the spine of the development that goes through it appears to be worth taking the area. In other words, there's nothing. The more you demolish, the more healthy you are. So just carrying on, these are pictures taken in 1991 by Andrew Holmes, an architect who went down this corner of this little stretch of street that I've written about a year or so after my book was done. And he just picked up these little images, and you can see this kind of energy around the place. What happened for me was as I was, this is a bit to be demolished, the general conflict of the new railway station and slab of flats. Um, but basically, what I found was as you looked at Dawson Lane, it sort of, as you researched it, as you talked to it, it became more and more magnificent. You know, I mean, 
I got to defend myself as a prosecutor for television journal history, which is more than And then the relations one another in this beautifully informally choreographed way, which has a bit to do with terror, a bit to do with curiosity. But even on somebody's going to buy that. You know, there's you know, this is a street where people still mend things, where where you can buy fourth time used restaurant equipment and open a, a kind of um yeah, here's a guy who's he's, he's a Kurdish guy. He's actually using the street. He's using it. It's a dead street, which is kind of, you know, the cars are whizzing by, and he's out there doing what he wants to do. Um, there, there used to be this, this dove slide called the North Side, early Victorian. There was a wonderful, slightly distressed, um, psychotic lady who used to, there's a, behind those trees is a parapet on the top of that building, and she used to often be seen with, sometimes with absolutely no clothes on, holding a board of chess and a chester, and she used to go down and Thank you very much, Patrick.
You say how difficult it is to, for a single author to encapsulate and get a uniform view of Hackney. Well, what Jerry has done is to try to get a single person unified view of an even bigger area, London. Not only this century, uh, the, the 20th century, but also the 19th century too. And he's at the moment undertaking the 18th century. Uh, but Jerry perhaps is able to do that because he is uh, a manager. As we know, he was once the chief executive of Hackney. He's now the local government ombudsman uh, based in Coventry. Uh, so he is not somebody who is remote from what's happening out there. Uh, across his desk, and I know he also follows up many of these investigations in person, come uh, a whole series of worries and anxieties and complaints about what's happening. But let's hear Jerry. Uh, I remember um, chatting to a taxi driver many years ago who was taking me from the West End to Clapton, where I, where I lived. And I must have got chatting to him about my pretensions to be a London historian because he said to me, do you know, I bet you don't know, how Hackney got its name. And I said, well, as a matter of fact, I think I do. It, uh, it comes from, uh, I understand, uh, the Anglo-Saxon of an eot uh, or an island in a marsh belonging to a man called Harkon. No, no. <laughs> He said, um, it was nothing to do with that. It, it's all about uh, when the knights in armour wanted to settle disputes, they went down to the marshes, and it was the hacking, he said, <laughs> that gave Hackney its name. And um, I thought, and I've, I've long remembered that, uh, it just goes to show that Hackney is a place of many myths. Um, and uh, as a writer, I've always dealt in far more dull and sober stuff, and so I've been racking my brains to, to know what to speak about this afternoon. I have nothing uh, to read of my own because I've written uh, very little about Hackney, and that's been largely incidental, as George says in these big books on uh, modern London. So I thought I'd add something new to the multi-layered narratives of Hackney, and even maybe something to the myths and talk a little bit about a single hackney life which is my own. I came to London from Dorset in 1970 at the age of uh, 21 and worked as a public health inspector for Islington Council. These things, places resonate uh, around, uh, around us today. Um, and in one form or another, as you've heard, um, I've been a local government bureaucrat ever since. You mustn't think however, that it's all my fault. <laughs> Around 1971, I married and lived in a converted flat in Casimir Road, Clapton, overlooking North Millfield, which is indeed one of uh, Hackney's many surviving commons. I think that Hackney is possibly the richest in its um, commons heritage of any, certainly of the East London boroughs, uh, certainly of the um, inner London boroughs. And I moved to a house in the same road some years after. Over the next 26 years or so, I lived in Clapton, Stamford Hill, and Stoke Newington at five different addresses. Around 1973, while still in Clapton, I discovered what has been a lifelong obsession in the history of London, 
especially, I suppose, the history of the lives of ordinary Londoners and the poor. Uh, it was an obsession that relied on books for fuel, and by 1973, too, I'd run across Ian Sinclair, um, who was then a bookseller in Camden Passage. I didn't know him as a writer uh, until some years uh, later. I bought many wonderful titles from him, among them some I know he wishes he'd kept to himself, and even sold a few books to him. And if I remember right, his wife was a school teacher at the infant school where my sons first went to school. So yeah, that's right, yeah, absolutely, yeah. My interests in history brought me into contact with Raphael Samuel and History Workshop. Raphael gets a mention in, um, or a few mentions in, in Ian's new book. And around 1979, or maybe 1980, I think I ran across Patrick Wright, who had submitted what I thought was a brilliant article in the History Workshop Journal, about which not all the editors, of whom I was one, could agree, and we've been friends ever since. My, connection, my connections with Hackney through the 1970s and just beyond were largely domestic and familial. I was not, for instance, anything like a Hackney historian. My historical work focused first on Spitalfields and then on Fins Finsbury Park, the Islington part again, I'm afraid. Although I was a sort of hanger-on around Centre Prize and the People's Autobiography of Hackney in the 1970s. I've been proud to call myself a friend of Ken Walpole, who again features in Ian's book ever since. And I helped organise the East London History Workshop Weekend conferences at Hoxton Hall in 1976 and 1977. To some extent, my connections were political, but at a low level. I was a relatively inactive member of the Hackney Labour Party for some years. I did some work for Shelter and the Child Poverty Action Group, inspecting council properties in South Hackney to evidence disrepair claims by the tenants. And I was a supporter of the Anti-Nazi League in their marches through Hoxton, I suppose in the mid to late 70s and early 80s, when fascism in London seemed to be capable of especially vicious resurgence. But my involvement in the borough became greatly enlarged and altered in 1984 when I was appointed Head of Environmental Health at the London Borough of Hackney. I left the, the Hackney Labour Party at the same time. It was a compromise I felt the citizens of Hackney shouldn't have to put up with. But my new job marked a much closer involvement with the borough and its people than any I've had before. <laughs> In 1984, Hackney Council was an extraordinary place at an extraordinary time. It was the half-willing victim, I summarise, of trade union-inspired anarchy. Filing in the Environmental Health Department was blacked in the elegant language of the time, and a room was filled with a year or more of paperwork stacked in piles on the floor. There were lockouts and occupations. I remember having to keep in the boot of my car a sort of... Um, the nucleus of an office in case we were locked out and I had to set up in some, uh, in some other council-run facility. The office tensions were such that I remember retching over the kitchen sink before I could face the daily torture. It was the worst time of my working life, just trying to bring some order to a public service on which many depended. Just how much one anecdote might show. Now, I've got a cockroach anecdote here. <laughs> And we've all mentioned cockroaches, and why this should be the case. Anyway, I'll let you have it, even if you can't stand too many cockroaches. I remember I was um, in, in a meeting at the town hall. We had a weekly management team meeting. This was when I was still in the environmental health department. And uh, we, 
somebody came in to ask for me because a deputation of, the, of tenants from the Kingsmead estate had uh, entered the town hall and refused to leave, and they were armed with jars of coffee, <laughs> which they were threatening to uh, release. Um, anyway, um, just despite my best endeavours, I couldn't get them to go without promising to go down and see them you know, as soon as I left the town hall. Um, we would, we'd been carrying out, I was in charge of, um, my department had pest control as part of its uh, uh, responsibilities, and we'd been carrying out some treatments on the Kingsmead Road Estate, the, uh, Kingsmead, Kingsmead Estate, but the complications with the, with the numbers of pests there meant that we had been treating first for pharaoh's ants. Pharaoh's ants are tiny uh, migrant uh, creatures which uh, infest kitchens in particular. And uh, the science of it was that we had to get rid of the pharaoh's ants before we could tackle the cockroaches. This was the uh, way around. And I remember being shown into a flat in the Kingsmead Road Estate where the infestation of cockroaches was as I had never seen in my life. This was in the, the bright sunny day. And there were tens of thousands of German cockroaches, they're called. Um, yeah, Blatella, um, tiny steam flies. You see them in ships and bakeries and that sort of place. There were tens of thousands over the walls, ceilings, uh, doors, everything. I remember seeing them walking in and out of suitcases which had been left because the family who lived there had abandoned it to the cockroaches. And that afternoon, I pulled the plug on the pharaoh's ant treatment, so we, begin, we could begin to treat uh, cockroaches uh, on the Kingsmead estate. And I'd be surprised if they've all gone. <laughs> no more cockroaches. Five years later, in 1989, and despite knowing exactly what I was letting myself in for, I was appointed chief executive of the council. Shortly after, with the demise of Ilya, I found myself at the head of some 15,000 staff. It was in many ways a more congenial job to me than running the environmental health and other services that I was doing before then, but by no means an easy one. Uh, juggling local politics, always poisonous. I do hope they're less toxic now. And handling many vexed issues in the workforce took up much of the first two years. And it was in this period, uh, I reckon, that I first met George Jones. And he came over to Hackney and I went over to the LSC to, to talk things over with him. But from around 1991, we were able to turn our gaze outwards, away from the preoccupations of the town hall to the needs of the borough, at least the needs as I and the politicians and officers around me understood them to be. Of course, others will have distinctly different opinions on that point. It was a privilege, I felt, to play some part in the City Challenge bid in Dalston, Kingsland and Hoxton, in the redevelopment of Holly Street and other estates, and particular enthusiasms, the establishment of Hackney Music Development Trust and a revamped Hackney Museum. Rightly or wrongly, these things seem to me the right things to do. Now, no doubt if I were there now, I'd be enthusiastically working away at Hackney's component of the Olympics bid. Whether we like it or not, Hackney, like the rest of London, will go on reinventing and transforming itself in ways that divide opinion. For some will lose and others will gain in any process of change. And it's often the locals who lose and the outsiders or newcomers who gain. It has, of course, always been that way. 
and one imagines always will. I left the council's employment in 1995 and moved away from Manor Road, Stoke Newington, which was my last Hackney address, and Hackney and London altogether in 1997. I've not been back much to Hackney, but I do occasionally, and I've donated my journals of life as chief executive to Hackney Archives. They're subject to a 30-year embargo <laughs> to protect, as they say, the innocent. Well, we've now got the rest of the time for comments, questions, discussion, argument from the floor. There are, I hope, roving mics, so if you want to ask a question, make a contribution. There's a question, contribution over there. It always helps on these occasions if you give your name and if you have any aff affiliation. David Blue. That's fine. Anyway, um, at the end of the 19th century, uh, was this marvellous uh, book called Old and New London. It's um, six volumes, altogether it's 3,000 pages, uh, each page 70 lines, two columns, 70 lines. It's about five or, eight, five or eight or ten times bigger than any other book about London. And I've never seen it mentioned, um, obviously I'm sure you would know it very well, but it's never been mentioned in any newspaper about London, in a new book review or anything else like that. And it's, it's a total classic. Because when they want to, they normally talk about crime, debauchery, and scurrilous incidents. But when they, which, which is normal enough, but they, they can talk about them at length. They're not, they don't have some crazy editor just cutting every possible story down to the bone. So they can quote, if they talk, I live in uh, Burroughs, so if they're quoting uh, The Mint, you know, which is where the bailiffs were not allowed to go, and then they can talk about Dickens and Pickwick Papers and Lad Street, and they can spin a page on that. Then they can talk about. Uh, the bear baiting in, um, on, the, on the river. Talk about how you know men used to go down there with knives and challenge each other. Uh, you know, in a, in a blunt spear, spear range, in effect, gladiatorial fights. And of course, there was the stand that collapsed, and 150 people died or got seriously injured. In, in Elephant Castle, there was the famous woman in 1960, very famous, who was like a, a holy woman. Uh, there's been several men like that, but she was the only holy woman in English. Well, let's find out what. Happened and to and those and books. And anyway, they ended up in the New Forest uh, dancing naked in the, uh, in, 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 in the forest. Yeah, I think it's um, Walter Thornbury, I think, was the um, editor of them, and uh, I think they are very good. And I, I certainly um, used them, and they're in my bibliography, it's any consolation. But um, yeah, very useful. And I'm, I didn't buy my copies from. No. From Ian. You didn't, uh, I can't. <laughs> oh, I should think we all know them, you see. Yeah, yeah, they're very good. Yes, question here. Contribute. Second row. Well, hello, yes, I'm Robin Puttick. Um, I've got a lot of connections with uh, the East End, uh, mostly with uh, the rival South in Stepney, where I was uh, fairly active in the uh, sporting I'm actually uh, I was married for a number of years to Astrid Prohl. I'm her English husband. <laughs> and uh, amongst other connections, and, uh, I think Jerry White, who said he worked at uh, Islington Public Health, is that right? Is my father also worked there probably at the same time? Yes, yes, of course. George. George Pottick. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very I've small world. So uh, anyway, I get to the question here. <laughs> Um, I'm just wondering, uh, my family also come from the East End, a lot of my, my uh, 
great-grandfather was a policeman of the Good Jack the Ripper and so on in Stepney and Whitechapel. Well, I'm just wondering what you feel about um, Peter Ackroyd's concept of the spirit of place. Is there any continuity across all these events in the East End? Or do you think it's just a, a tale told by an idiot where things just go from one thing to another randomly? Well, I, I, I think there's a... It's an interesting concept, Peter's one, I, but I think it's um, conservative in a sense that, that it, it holds the notion that, that change isn't really possible because certain areas, he, I think he describes time in a sort of vortex, slowing in certain particular, white chapel, whopping, whatever, that you, you cannot escape this sort of whirlpool of time where the same events come back time and again. And although that's an interesting conceit, I, I don't actually feel it myself to be true. Although I do think there is this dense palimpsest of it, and once you start digging on something, you will uncover layer after layer. But you also have to be aware of the kind of shock waves that are coming in from the future. And that we, we, we spoke a lot about the uh, notion of, Patrick was do, talking about the kind of notion of a divided city. And I think the enclosures that happen now with, with the Olympics are very similar to the the enclosures that the poet John Clare would have known, the agricultural enclosures, which actually were part of a damaging psychological effect. And when they attempted these in Hackney itself, we heard about these commons as well that Hackney is so rich in. Hackney Downs was enclosed, but the local populace just ripped down the fences and helped themselves to the crops of the single person who was there. And Lammas lands had been fought for. But in another sense, I think it's very interesting too that, that Ackroydian notion of recurrence. Um, it was so amazing to hear you say that you know you you, you had been Astrid Pearl's husband, because one of the one of the elements in this book was this sort of quest that ran through the book. That I knew I knew that uh, she had lived in the area, but I didn't know anything much about her myself, and discovered that every single person, almost every major person I'd known in terms of interviewing in the book had known her and been part of her life in some way. So that this person who was ostensibly being searched for by kind of presumably the police forces of Europe was incredibly visible to everybody in Hackney except me. <laughs> Even though she was a gardener also on London Fields at the end of the at the end of the road where I live and had lived in London Fields and had lived around Broadway Market also and seemed now to have a kind of real affection for this area. Yeah, uh, no, I, I, on your question on the spirit of place issue and this thing, you say, is it a tale told by an idiot? Well, I have to say, my friend Ian is the idiot, really. <laughs> because Peter Ackroyd got all that stuff from fleecing Ian's poems, you know, the, the, the whole business of the Hawksmoor triangulations and things. And, you know, that book, Hawksmoor, he wrote, is large tracts of it are just sort of lifted from Ian. I mean, it's an extraordinary operation, not just a sentence or an idea, pages. Um, now, what I would say about this is, I don't believe that you know, there is a kind of malevolent curse built into the structure of the city that's removing people's choice or ability to determine. I don't buy this at all. What I do think is that this um, sort of strategy that Ian launched around the, the kind of idea of a, an enlightenment gone wrong was a brilliant way of dealing with what was going on at the end of the welfare state, you know, where, where ideas of post-war urban planning and all these things have sort of come to a kind of terrible sticky shuddering halt which Margaret Thatcher then decided to really kick to death and it seemed to me that the, 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 the way that theory of East London became expressed in the 80s and 90s particularly was a very interesting uh, reaction to the political reality of the times 
And it was interesting to me that it came particularly from Ian, who was, in a sense, very careful not to say, I mean, you know, you could say that Ian comes from a kind of sensibility that is of the left, in a way, but he was very uninterested in all those years that he was packing cigars and sort of doing gardening and all that stuff in East London. He was not going to join the SWP. I mean, you know, his politics was not of that kind. So it strikes me as very interesting that there's this sort of very, very strong analysis and symbolic resistance to what was going on at that time came from that quarter, not from, say, David Widgery, who we all liked, but who somehow was so busy trying to keep the politics intact that the question of how you apply it to reality was very closed down. So I don't believe in the curse in the ground, but I think the idea of the curse in the ground was very useful as a literary strategy. Yeah, and also, in a sense, if you write about the curse in the ground, that becomes a self-fulfilling property because there was a kind of literature generated around what Peter had done in a kind of Baroque or Gothic imagination, which then filtered through to people like Alan Moore, who created huge structures which have become hugely globally influential in terms of sort of cyberspace. It breathes like a virus, so that once you've stated that persuasively enough, it becomes a truth in the way it was like I was very interested in... Uh, people like Hawking in the early days when, when his work was, before it sort of emerged into the public stage it was being very much discussed by poets like Jeremy Prynne in, in Cambridge who had on his desk a huge series of calculations by Hawking on one side and a huge <coughs> series of research papers from Charles Olson the American poet who believed in absolutely in this sen sense of place that you take one small town Gloucester, Massachusetts and from that, you can open out by researching it to discover the whole world. And it, you start with particulars, facts, details, and it opens, opens out into a cosmology. The kind of Freudian one, in a sense, was the opposite process. It was folding inward into a sense of the city is cursed, the city is doomed, the city is dark, and dark things are present now. And it, this is a, a sort of static theory. And the other one is incredible. And the, Haw the Hawking notion was that if you have an elegant enough equation, uh, then the proof will be discovered within, within the star system. But you, you do the structure first. And I feel this with writing, that if the writing is perfect and managed and absolutely right, then the kind of proofs follow. And so from <coughs> the uh, novels and poems of that period then evolved a kind of proof in that it's now reached the fact of being Hollywood movies and epic structures that follow, which then themselves influence the thing so on that you can't escape it. Now my eye has been caught over here, yes? Can I just say, I don't buy the tragedy of the commons. This is a thesis which comes out of an extremely right-wing mindset, which says that the reason why the commons failed to operate as a form of social organization is because if you let people have access to them, they over-exploit things and they all die. 
So the idea of the commons is that they had to be enclosed because if you let the people use them, they're incapable of regulating themselves. They're all like cockroaches, to return to our metaphor, and just devour everything and the commons die. So I would reject the question of the tragedies of the commons. I don't think it's a useful metaphor. Um, I do think, you know, basically the city farm is a, is a better example of a common than Tesco's because, I mean, Tesco's operates in a model of consumerism, as we know whereas the city farm allows you to determine your relationship to it in a way that you can invent as you go along. It's not the only example, but uh, the key point for me is abstract, that the commons are, it's a metaphor, it's very rich. It allows you to think of the common interest in a way that isn't just buried under concrete, which is what the political ideologies did to them. There is a zone of commons that back back off Victoria Park, there is a, a little common that runs into a, a zone on Well Street, which is where the very first Tesco was ever built by, by the original founder who came in off the street and actually shifted the whole operation inwards. That he had a street stall, stack them up high, sell them cheap, and this becomes a Tesco store. And the street market which fronted that store is now under threat and has in fact disappeared. But further down Morning Lane, a little further along, on the path of this mysterious Hackney Brook, which actually shaped the whole area. The geography and geology of the thing is the essence, coming back to the spirit of place, is why, it, why these villages grew up, why the grand houses were on the heights of Homerton, of which Sutton House is now the only survivor, which Peeps visited and so on, was simply because this river was flowing through. And the place where there were the wonderful watercress beds of Hackney is now this huge Tesco's. It's the Tesco's on Morning Lane. And I, is it a common? It is a kind of a common space in, in that it's a space of absolute collision. I'll just read a little paragraph about it. According to Anna, this is my wife, Tesco's car park between Mare Street and Morning Lane was the most aggressive and agitated site in the whole of Hackney, and there were plenty to choose from. It was a game reserve for which you had to be very game, up to speed and cranked and combat hound, ready to beat off the professional beggars, the coin prospectors, the thieves, the peddlers of contraband DVDs, the confused, sad human relics, the unhoused mad folk, the rough sleepers, the shopping trolley chauffeurs who demanded the right to reclaim the pound you paid as security. They were lined up along the wall under the overhang of the roof and they were part of the action, so that by carrying your bags or pushing your trolley or guarding your car, they achieved status. They were honorary consumers. They were like medieval vagrants. They were like barefoot pilgrims sheltering beside a great cathedral. The supermarket had a space platform glow where open 24 hours, a thorium luminescence like the lips of unfortunate women who spend their lives painting numbers on a watch dial, a terminal zone for tourists who will never leave town, malformed <coughs> pigeons, feathers the colour of sodden bog paper, mobbed the spike Tesco sign, scratching their parasites on anti-bird spikes. The canted roof was sick with droppings. So, uh, for me, um, this Tesco's car park is a kind of common of enormous interest and also a kind of wilderness eco-zone. And Patrick has talked about how this uh, rhetoric of, of eco-politics kind of overwhelms all kinds of strange things. I thought the perfect example of this was on London Field, where the council didn't really have the money to, to keep up or do anything with this particular stretch of London Fields. They didn't afford the gardeners anymore. So instead, they put in a series of notices banged into the ground and said, this is a wilderness area. 
thought that was like a perfect example of what happens. You do nothing, but you invent the spin to sell it. So in, in fact that you can no longer do anything, it, it gradually grows the grass. It becomes a wilderness area and a habitat for caterpillars and possibly unhoused cockroaches from the demolished town block. Now, my eyes caught over here. My name is Nick Scammell. I've just actually uh, completed a, I'm a photographer, I've just completed a uh, project. Can you speak a bit louder, please? But, uh, my name is Nick Scammell. I'm a photographer. I've just recently completed a uh, documentary project on street life and uh, around different parts of London. Uh, Hackney was part of it. Uh, my exhibition actually opens on Tuesday. <laughs> if you want to come, it's on Hoxton Street, Macbeth Gallery. Anyway, uh, my question was, um, is actually for Ian. I, w I wondered if you can confirm um, uh, that you've actually been banned from promoting your book uh, in uh, uh, Hackney's public libraries because of your lack of uh, enthusiasm. For the <laughs> uh, yeah, this, this is a really quite a strange episode and, and very lucky for me. Uh, what happened was, I, I, about a year or so ago, I did an event very like this. We were talking about um, Hackney writers in the Stoke Newington Library and I was you know, enthusiasing about uh, Patrick's book, about... Uh, Rain on the Pavement by Roland Camberton and about the books of Alexander Bauer and, and talking about a huge tradition of Hackney writing. And they asked me, because I said I was working <coughs> on a Hackney book myself, to come back in a year's time and, and speak to a small group, probably 20 people in the Stone Newton Library. And I agreed to do this, which was going to be, as it were, the launch for this book. Um, and then, just before this was due to happen, the, the phone went and the librarian rang up and said, I'm sorry, We've had to withdraw your invitation to appear in Stoke Newton Library because uh, we've been told by somebody at the council that you've written an article in the London Review of Books which was a bit off message about the Olympics, so we can no longer have you. <laughs> and the librarians are not very happy about this because we, we really feel strongly that published authors should be encouraged into the, into the local libraries to get other local writers going and, show, you know, and so on and so on. Well, I said, well, don't worry. I'm absolutely delighted with this because instead of 20 people, I mean, I'm sure this is going to cause a furore. <laughs> I was on the Today program the next morning and so on, and the thing erupted into an enormous row because the things that, local, that people really feel aggrieved about losing are allotments and libraries. And the fact that it was emerged in the book that a lot of the library budget had actually been taken to install CCTV systems only heated this thing up. Well, then the, the council refused to appear and discuss or debate any of this and, and denied that it had anything whatsoever to do with the Olympics. They came up with a second position, which was, I can't be allowed into the library because libraries are not suitable for controversial subjects. <laughs> for example, we, they said, the two examples they gave was we, we, couldn't, we couldn't have stem cell research or Afghanistan discussed in libraries. And I suppose neither could you discuss Hackney. <laughs> well, then there's a kind of wonderful uh, local freedom sheet called the Hackney Citizen, and these people used the Freedom of Information Act and, and went back and looked at all the emails that had passed through from Hackney Council. And it went back that there was a, di a directive from Jules Pipe, the mayor, which said this person cannot be allowed into a library. You know, and it's because it's the Olympics. So the, the whole thing was a complete fabrication, a spin, and a lie. Uh, and then there was a lot of local feeling that was aggrieved about the libraries, the use of libraries, and the council responded. And now 
they've been forced to kind of convene an event in a library which we're going to debate the Olympics. So <laughs> the whole thing has turned this mad circle to end up with the very thing they didn't want, which I wasn't ever going to do. I would never have... <laughs> I was going to talk about Hackney Wright. <laughs> so, I mean, as PR, you know, and this, this group, this is, this is what disturbs me, is that you've actually created a kind of bureaucracy. We're not, not people like um, Jerry, who are actually dealing with cockroaches or environment or anything else, but a kind of category of spinner, which are an enormous number on sort of salaries of 50,000 a year, just managing news and just actually have, doing nothing practical or useful but trying to make things seem better than they are. And it is disturbing, and it is annoying. There's a hand, a, a silver-haired gentleman, caught my eye first. And then after that, the lady, and after that, the gentleman with the beard. Thank, thank you for the silvered hair bit. Um, I live in Hackney. No shouts of horror. <laughs> Um, I just wanted to, uh, one, by the way, there are a lot of uh, uh, LSE students here. It's a good place to be in Hackney because you've got three buses which you can take down, two of which will land you at the door of LSE. And they do it quite quickly. Uh, so it has uh, some characteristics. I, I, uh, um, I know I, I don't write about London, as the panel does, although I'd like to. Um, but I uh, find, I, we moved into Hackney only 15 years ago, and uh, out of Islington, by the way. Uh, Islington was such a terrible place at that time, uh, and there was a council almost as good as the one that was uh, being described in Hackney a little while ago. But the great characteristic of Hackney, for me, is that it is so different in so many ways, it's not different. I don't mean it, I mean itself. If you walk up as we do about it all the time, uh, it's got so many different things that uh, represent London or are particular and different. And uh, certainly, um, Ian's books, you know, and the way he approaches this thing, it's a place where you really feel there's things in life happening and it's changing and you don't know what will be around the next corner, whether it's one of those posters of people who are, uh, who are illustrated up there. It's just very full of life. And I think it's not, it is a there, but it's a there of many different things. And they don't act together into a neat parcel, thank God. I mean, the boroughs in London that do are neatly tied up and beautiful are really empty. That, you can't say that about uh, um, Hackney. It's never empty. There's always something that you'll fall across, even if it's dog shit. <laughs> Thank you. Can, 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 can I just quickly agree with you, but also I'd like to say that given that so much sort of negativity has been around Hackney, even to this day, in its general popular press profile. It's, I always feel obliged to tell people who aren't in Londoners that Hackney is a place where people spend an inordinate amount of time not mugging and raping one another. You know, you do have to sort of spell that out to some people quite, quite severely. Yeah. Uh, hi. Um, my question is to Ian Sinclair. Um, could you please um, 
elaborate a bit what is the argument with the Olympic project in relation with Hackney? Uh, Sorry, the argument with what? Uh, with the, the Olympic project in, in relation with Hackney. Like My argument with the Olympic project? Yes, yes, because it seems to me that um, sometimes, well, um, you have been told about this and you have been said a lot of things that it's about to build fences that stop the cosmology of Hagni or I don't know, uh, what, what is the, the discussion? Well, my, I mean, it's a huge, uh, huge subject, really, but my basic argument with the Olympic project is that it's nothing to do with the Olympics. The, the Olympic project is actually about creating a huge shopping mall for an Australian developer called, is, has got this mall called Westfield, which uh, one example is now in Shepherd's Bush. The other example is going to appear in Stratford. It's massive. And a whole series of other particular developments were going to go on there, which were going to happen anyway. But this, the notion of the Olympics brought in is simply a way, kind of smokescreen, of pushing the thing through very fast and siphoning off whole tranches of government money. It's a, a kind of Olympics could have been held rather like these wonderful Olympics that London had after the war in 1948. They had what was sort of known as the Austerity Olympics, in which you more or less used anything that was there, Nissen huts and people lived in people's houses, just boarded in people's houses. You used the facilities that were in the city anyway, made the best of it. Any, uh, kind of people gathered from all over the place and had these games that were, were rather extraordinary and, and very ad hoc and curious. Now, it's a massive, huge global development. The sponsors, we, we, you know, we're given the statistics of sponsorship. Coca-Cola, Lloyds Bank, who are collapsing. McDonald's are going to provide the food. <laughs> The loss has been enormous, and at the end of the day, what is now the pitch that they've come up with? Because the whole notion was that private developers would come in and provide a lot of the money, and that it would sort of be a, a partnership. Well, all of the private developers, bit by bit, are withdrawing. They're going. So, in fact, we are going to be picking up this enormous, massive debt, which we can't afford. We're in an enormous hole, and we're still digging. It's, it's a kind of apocalyptic disaster. Um, the materials, the radioactive materials from these dirty and dangerous industries that were on the site were relatively inert. There was a watch, a luminous watch dial factory and they dumped the, the toxic material in the cesspits of an estate that was called Clay's Lane. While, there was, while they were lying down there in the ground untouched, nothing was happening, they were, they were relatively inert. But of course, having to do this huge building project so rapidly, meant that the thorium from this radioactive site has now leaked into the water table, which is actually radioactive. I mean, you, you cannot do things very fast. It's, it's an extraordinary and insane development that actually is going to end up with something that's going to be presented back to the people of London as a people's park. Well, what was there originally? What was there before this started? It was an actually uh, an untamed people's park. It was a zone of allotments. It was an extraordinary community that existed in Clay's Lane. A lot of students were there. A lot of people that didn't mind living in this strange edgeland had formed a community that, that was actually exactly the kind of community you try and engender, where the people cared for each other. They had communal meetings, and they were dispersed to the four winds. They were told they'd be kept together, but they weren't. They were dispersed, 
the travellers' camps are gone. A, a kind of extraordinary collaged wilderness area on the edge of everything was destroyed and overnight for something which I don't think is, is um, particularly English. It's a sort of a global phenomenon, a kind of capitalist feast in which your chemists compete <coughs> with our chemists to see who can win the most medals, which is a kind of industrial process. And I don't think that's particularly worth the price it's costing. Yes, I can see we're getting controversial. Now, there's one final question. I must come to a, a conclusion. So we'll have a question, please. I know you've had your hand up for some time. Oh, well, there's two of you. Um, well, go on, two, two quick questions. So just speak a bit louder, because I can't hear it. I'll do my question, maybe. Um, okay, Jane Bartlett, Hackney resident for the last 19 years. So, Ian and the panel, I have to ask, what do you feel about the announcement in the Evening Standard two days ago that Jules Pipe might be standing for London Mayor? Does that mean that he can actually apply his experience of running Hackney for the last eight years London-wide? Well, the whole, I mean, the whole, the great thing now, I think I heard that, was it's about Jules Pipe applying to be London Mayor? Yeah, well, it, this is again, you know, I started by talking about the money metaphor having collapsed. And this is another metaphor of a kind of celebrity culture. It's like the whole of politics becomes this game show. And uh, Boris Johnson obviously auditioned very successfully on Have I Got News for You and proved that he could be this sort of a Woosterish figure that was also known to be very intelligent and a classicist despite it all. And he, therefore, becomes London Mayor. <coughs> uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger is governor. The whole thing becomes an extraordinary construction, which is like a kind of form of a desperate TV show. It's another second life. And so in that sense, Jules Pipe is a perfect candidate, but a perfect candidate to fail. Because most of the newspaper hoardings I saw as I walked down the road here were saying, Alan Sugar. Mayor, because he's got a more popular TV programme. <laughs> he's, he's a Hackney figure, of course. He grew up in Hackney and, and endlessly boasts about his humble beginnings in Hackney and, and cooking up kind of vegetable oils on a Saturday morning. So he's an he's a absolutely key image. Uh, a, a guy whose sort of businesses failed and became disastrous, who reinvents himself as a, a TV growler and, and is now going to be Mayor of London. Perfect. <laughs> yep. Got it working now. My name's Jackie. I used to live on in Newington Green on Burntower Road, actually, and uh, some, my happiest years of my life were there, and uh, it was a very special place. Here I'm a PhD student, and I'm writing about policing in Jakarta, and I really reson resonated with what Patrick and Ian were saying about the difficulties of representing place, and I wondered if you wouldn't mind giving a few words, a sort of forensic autopsy of how you dealt with the information that you received and how you structured it and grouped it and how, what sorts of decisions did you struggle over in doing that? Well, for me, I mean, the, the issue for me was that I, I think I'm about as, you know, I mean, I'm not entirely short of self-regard, 
But I nevertheless, I nevertheless found writing about Hackney quite challenging because the reality of the place simply keeps sort of either disrupting or outperforming my own sentences. That's what I remember feeling when I was writing about it. <coughs> what I feel is that to understand, one of the things that makes me very cross with sort of conventional literary writing, I mean, I was, when I wrote that book, Journey Through Rids, I was vehemently hostile to all ideas of travel writing written by British people. Because it seemed to me that the world was full of these guys who would get a little degree somewhere and they would sort of realize they wanted to be writers. Well, I don't, I think the world's divided between people who want to be something and people who want to do something. And doing something is a better way to go. So I've never had this desire to be a writer. I'm not, I mean, I am praising myself a bit, forgive me. But the point about travel writers is they fly off to somewhere exotic in order to make themselves exotic. You know, so you end up with perceptions that would be utterly banal and insulting if you express them in your own country. And because you're in St. Helena and you've just been up the mountain on a donkey and you've formed an amorous relationship with somebody who you've never met, you know, I mean, all this nonsense. You end up with, with, with that, and that's what travel was. Now, for me, the issue was I can't sort of, I can't do a summary of what this place means. I can't collapse it all into my view of it. So I'm going to do traveling for people without air tickets. That's how I thought of this book. And I thought I would just use geography as a way of getting over the shortcomings of my approach, but also confronting myself with, with new things that I had to think about. So I used movement as an alternative to order. In the, in the making of that book. And the last thing I'd say is that I also believe that you can't write about a modern experience or reality, in my judgment, without having an archive. You know, you, you know, no piece of writing that doesn't have an archive at the moment seems to me to have a chance of commanding the reality we're in. You've, you've got to be able to understand, you've got to be able to use the archive, not like a historian does for evidence to support your, your already stated position but to disrupt yourself and to open questions that seem boring, that, you know, to make things interesting, to uh, keep yourself awake in the morning, to understand how the world got to be the way it is. So my view of this world where we live in fiction or non-fiction, this is the bookseller's division, it's nonsense. I mean, modern experience demands forms of prose that are both involved in research, which are you know, may take you into university libraries, um, and which also operate on the street. So I think what we're all looking for in one way or another is that form of prose. And I think in this country, I mean, Ian and I have been involved, we've sort of been talking about these things on and off for a long time, and I don't know how well we've done. But I think, basically, I'm pleased to think that Hackney has played quite a part in, in sort of doing that. I mean, we're not all writing Hampstead novels, you know. And not that long ago we were, and indeed some people still are. Okay, thank you. Gary?